Section four of Bush Studies by Barbara Bainton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Billy Skywonky. The line was unfenced, so with due regard to the possibility of the drought-dulled sheep attempting to chew it, the train crept cautiously along, stopping occasionally without warning to clear it from the listless starving brutes. In the carriage nearest the cattle vans, some drovers and scrub-cutters were playing euchre, and spasmodically chorusing the shrill music from an uncertain concertina. When the train stopped, the player thrust his head from the carriage window. From one nearer the engine, a commercial traveller remonstrated with the guard concerning the snail's pace and the many unnecessary halts. "'Take your time, old dyard!' yelled the drover to the guard. "'Whips a time! Don't bust yourself for no one!' "'What's all the world to a man when his wife's a widder?' He laughed noisily and waved his hat at the seething bagman. "'Go on, have a snooze. I'll wake you up the day after tomorrow.' He craned his neck to see into the nearest cattle van. Forward down, he told his mates, who remarked, with blasphemous emphasis, that they would probably lose half before getting them to the scrub country. The listening woman passenger, in a carriage between the drover and the bagman, heard a thud soon after in the cattle truck, and added another to the list of the fallen. Before dawn that day the train had stopped at a siding to truck them, and she had watched with painful interest these drought-tamed brutes being driven into the crowded vans. The tireless, greedy sun had swiftly followed the grey dawn, and in the light that even now seemed old and worn, the desolation of the barren shelterless plains that the night had hidden appalled her. She realised the sufferings of the emaciated cattle. It was barely noon, yet she had twice emptied the water-bottle, shogging in the iron bracket. The train dragged its weary length again, and she closed her eyes from the monotony of the dead plain. Suddenly the engine cleared its throat, in shrill welcome to two iron tanks, hoisted twenty feet and blazing like evil eyes from a vanished face. Beside them it squatted on its hunkers, placed a blackened thumb on its pipe, and hissed through its closed teeth like a snared wildcat, while gulping yards of water. The green slimy odour penetrated to the cattle, the lustiest of these stamped feebly, clashing their horns and bellowing a hollow request. A long-bearded bushman was standing on the few slabs that formed a siding, with a stock-whip coiled like a snake on his arm. The woman passenger asked him the name of the place. "'This is the Never-Never, the last place God made,' answered one of the drovers, who were crowding the windows. "'Better in the earls you's come from, anyhow,' defended the bushman. "'Breaking their arts and dying from suicide cause they left it,' he added derisively, pointing to the cattle. In patriotic anger he passed to the guard van without answering her question, though she looked anxiously after him. At various intervals during the many halts of the train she had heard some of the obscene jokes, and with it in motion snatches of lewd songs from the drover's carriage. But the language used by this bushman to the guard, as he helped to remove a ton of fencing wire topping his new saddle, made her draw back her head. Near the siding was a spring cart and she presently saw him throw his flattened saddle into it and drive off. There was no one else in sight, and in nervous fear she asked the bagman if this was Guriaba's siding. It was nine miles further, he told her. The engine lifted its thumb from its pipe. Well, well, to be sure, well, well, to be sure, it puffed, 
as if in shocked remembrance of its being hours late for its appointment there. She saw no one on the next siding, but a buggy waited near the slip-rails. It must be for her. According to Sydney arrangements, she was to be met here, and driven out twelve miles. A driver inquired as the train left her standing by her portmanteau, "'Are you travelling on your lonesome, or are you going somewhere?' And another flung a twist of paper towards her, brawling unmusically, that it was, "'A flower from the angel mother's grave!' She went towards the buggy, but as she neared it, the driver got in and made to drive off. She ran and called, for when he went she would be alone with the bush all round her, and only the sound of the hoarse croaking of the frogs from the swamp near, and the raucous, Oh, oh, is, I, ow, of the crows. Yes, he was from Guriaba Station, and had come to meet a young piece from Sydney, who had not come. She was ghastly with bilious sickness, the result of an overfed brain and an underfed liver. Her face flushed muddily. Was it a housekeeper? He was the rouseabout, wearing his best clothes with awful unusualness. The coat was too long in the sleeve, and wrinkled across the back with his bush slouch. There was that wonderful margin of loose shirt between waistcoat and trousers, which all swagger bushies affect. Subordinate to nothing decorative was the flaring silk handkerchief, drawn into a sailor's knot round his neck. He got out and fixed the winkers, then put his hands as far as he could reach into his pockets, from the position of his trousers he could not possibly reach bottom. It was apparently some unknown law that suspended them. He thrust forward his lower jaw, elevated his pipe, and squirted a little tobacco juice towards his foot that was tracing semicircles in the dust. "'Damned if I know,' he said with a snort, "'but there'll be a hell of a row somewhere.' She noticed that the discoloured teeth his bush grin showed so plainly were worn in the centre and met at both sides with the pipe between the front. Worn stepping-stones, her mind insisted. She looked away towards the horizon, where the smoke of the hidden train showed faintly against a clear sky, and as he was silent she seemed to herself to be intently listening to the croak of the frogs and the thread of the crows. She knew that, from under the brim of the hat, he wore over his eyes, he was looking at her sideways, Suddenly he withdrew his hands, and said again, "'Damned if I know. Suppose it's all right. Got any traps? Get up then, and hold the neddy while I get it.' They drove a mile or sixty in silence. His pipe was still in his mouth, though not alight. She spoke once only. "'What a lot of frogs seem to be in that lake!' He laughed. "'That's the nine-mile dam.' He laughed again, after a little an intelligent, complacent laugh. It used to be swarming with teal in a good season, but God Almighty knows when it's ever going to rain any more. I don't know. This was an important admission, for he was a great weather prophet. Lake. He sniggered and looked sideways at his companion. That's what that there bloke, the painter doodle, called it, and he goes to draw it. And he says what he'll give me five bob if I run up their horses and keep em so's he can put them in the picture. And he draws the dam and the trees, puts in that there old dead un, and he puts in the horses right close against the water where the frogs is. He puts them in too, and damned if he don't draw their horses drinking their water with their frogs, and their frogs spit on it. Likely yarn their horses a drink their water with their blanky frogs spit on it. Fat lot they know about the bush, blasted nannies. 
Presently he inquired as to the place where they kept pictures in Sydney, and she told him the art gallery. "'Well, some of these days I'm going down to Sydney,' he continued, "'and I'll collar that one, cause it's a good likeness of their horses. You'd know their ride on a gum tree. And that mean mongrel never paid me the five bob.' Between his closed teeth he hissed a bush tune for some miles, but ceased to look at the sky, and remarked, "'No sign of rain.' No lamb in this season. Soon as they're dropped, we'll have to knock em all on their head. He shouted an oath of hatred at the crows following after the tottering sheep that made in a straggling line for the water. Look at em, he said, scoffing out their eyes. He pointed to where the crows hovered over the bogged sheep. They putty well lives on eyes. Blanky bush chinkies, I call em. No one can't tell em apart. There was silence again, except for a remark that he could spit all the blanky rain they had had in the last nine months. Away to the left, along a side track, his eyes travelled searchingly as they came to a gate. He stood in the buggy and looked again. "'Promise the conk to leave him out the first squint at you,' he muttered, "'if he was here to open the gate. But I'm not going to blanky well wait all day.' He reluctantly got out and opened the gate and he had just taken his seat when a cooee sounded from his right, heralded by a dusty pillar. He snorted resentfully. Here he is, just as I got out and done it. The conk cantered to them, his horse's hoofs padded by the dust-cushioned earth. The driver drew back so as not to impede the newcomer's view. After a moment or two, the conk, preferring closer quarters, brought his horse around to the left unsophisticated bush wonder in the man's face met the sophisticated in the girl's. Never had she seen anything so grotesquely monkeyish, and the nose of this little hairy horror as he slewed his neck to look into her face blotted the landscape and dwarfed all perspective. She experienced a strange desire to extend her hand. When surprise lessened, her metal saved her from the impulse to cover her face with both hands to baffle him. At last the silence was broken by the driver drawing a match along his leg and lighting his pipe. The hairy creature safely arranged a pair of emu eggs slung with bush skill round his neck. "'Ain't you going to part?' inquired the driver, indicating his companion as the recipient. "'What are you giving us? What do you take me for?' said the conk indignantly, drawing down his knotted veil. "'Well, give them to me for Liza.' Will you have em now, or will you wait till you get em? Gonna sit on em yourself, sneered the driver. Yes, and I'll give you the first egg the cock lays, laughed the conk. He turned his horse's head back to the gate. I say, Billy Skywonky, what price Sally are too, eh? He asked, his gorilla mouth agape. Billy Skywonky uncrossed his legs, took out the whip. He tilted his pipe and shook his head as he prepared to drive to show that he had understood to a fraction the price of Sally R. too. The aptness of the question took the sting out of his having had to open the gate. He gave a farewell jerk. "'Going to wash your neck?' shouted the man with the nose from the gate. "'Not if I know it.' The conk received the intimation incredulously. "'Stinkin' Roger!' he yelled. In bush parlance this was equal to emphatic disbelief. This was a seemingly final parting, and both started, but suddenly the conk wheeled round. "'Oh, Billy!' he shouted. 
Billy stayed his horse and turned expectantly. "'When's it going to rain?' The driver's face darkened. "'You blanky jealousy! I'll get you down and worry you yet!' he snarled, and slashing his horse he drove rapidly away. "'Mickey the conk!' he presently remarked to his companion as he stroked his nose. This explained her earlier desire to extend her hand. If the conk had been a horse, she would have stroked his nose. "'Mob of sheep can camp in the shadow of it,' he said. Boundless scope for shadows on that sun-smitten, treeless plain. "'Make a good ploughshare,' he continued. "'Easy plough cultivation paddock with it.' At the next gate he seemed in a mind and body conflict. There were two tracks. He drove along one for a few hundred yards. Then stopping, he turned, and finding the conk out of sight, abruptly drove across to the other. He continually drew his whip along the horse's back, and haste seemed the object of the movement, though he did not flog the beast. After a few miles on the new track, a blob glittered dazzlingly through the glare like a fallen star. It was the iron roof of the wine shanty, the Saturday night and Sunday resort of shearers and rouseabouts for twenty miles around. Most of its spirits was made on the premises from bush recipes, of which bluestone and tobacco were the chief ingredients. Every drop had the reputation of biting all the way down. A sapling studded with broken horseshoes seemed to connect two lonely crowstone trees. Under their scanty shade groups of dejected fowls stood with beaks agape. Though the buggy wheels almost reached them, they were motionless but for quivering gills. The ground, both sides of the shanty, was decorated with tightly pegged kangaroo skins. A dog, apathetically blind and dumb, lay on the veranda, lifeless save for eyelids blinking in antagonism to the besieging flies. "'Jerry can't be far off,' said Billy Skywonky, recognising the dog. He stood up in the buggy. "'By cripes! There he is, goosed already, and he only got his check last night.' On the chimney-side of the shanty a man lay in agitated sleep beside his rifle and swag. There had been a little shade on that side in the morning, and he had been sober enough to select it, and lay his head on his swag. He had emptied the bottle lying at his feet since then. His swag had been thoroughly gone through, and also his singlet and trouser pockets. The fumes from the shanty grog baffled the flies. But the scorching sun was conquering. The man groaned, and his hands began to search for his burning head. Billy Skywonky explained to his companion that it was that fool Jerry there, kangaroo shooter, blew in his check for skins. He took the water bag under the buggy and poured the contents into the open mouth and over the face of the dosed man, and raised him into a sitting posture. Jerry fought this friendliness vigorously, and staggering to his feet, picked up his rifle and took drunken aim at his rescuer, then at the terrified woman in the buggy. The rouseabout laughed unconcernedly. "'He thinks we're blanky kangaroos,' he said to her. "'Jerry, old cock, you couldn't hit a wall-shed. You've been taking the sun.' He took the rifle and pushed the subdued Jerry into the chimney-corner. He tilted his hat till, bush-fashion, it hung on one air and went inside the shanty. "'Mag!' he shouted, thumping the bar, a plank supported by two casks. The woman in the buggy saw a slatternly girl with doughy hands come from the back, wiping the flour from her face with a kitchen towel. 
They made some reference to her, she knew, as the girl came to the door and gave her close scrutiny. Then, shaking her head, till her long brass earrings swung like pendulums, she laughed loudly. "'Eh?' inquired the rouseabout. "'My oath, square dinkum,' she answered, going behind the bar. He took the silk handkerchief from his neck and playfully tried to flick the corner into her eye. Mag was used to such delicate attentions and well able to defend herself. With the dirty kitchen towel she succeeded in knocking off his hat, and round and round the house she ran with it, dexterously dodging the skin pegs. He could neither overtake nor outwit her with any dodge. He gave in and ransomed his hat with the shouts she demanded. From the back of the shanty a bent old woman, almost on all fours, crept towards the man, again prostrate in the corner. She paused with her ear turned to where the girl and the rouseabout were still at horseplay. With cat-like movements she stole on till within reach of Jerry's empty pockets. She turned her terrible face to the woman in the buggy, as if in expectation of sympathy. Keeping wide of the front door, she came to the further side of the buggy. With the fascination of horror, the woman looked at this creature, whose mouth and eyes seemed to dishonour her draggled grey hair. She was importuning for something, but the woman in the buggy could not understand, till she pointed to her toothless mouth, the mission of which seemed to be to fill its cavernous depths with the age-loosened skin above and below. A blue bag under each eye aggressively ticked like the gills of the fowls, and the sinews of the neck strained into basso relievo. Alternately she pointed to her mouth, or laid her knotted fingers on the blue bags in pretense of wiping tears. Entrenched behind the absorbed skin terraces, a stump of purple tongue made efforts at speech. When she held out her claw, the woman understood and felt for her purse. Wolfishly the old hag snatched and put into her mouth the coin, and as the now merry driver, followed by Mag, came, she shook a warning claw at the giver and flopped whining in the dust, her hands ostentatiously open and wiping dry eyes. "'Hello, Biddy, on the booze again?' The bottle bulging from his coat pocket made speech with him intelligible, despite the impeding coin. He placed the bottle in the boot of the buggy, and turning to Mag, said, "'Give the poor old cow a dose.' "'Yes, one in a billy. Anything else might make her sick,' said Mag. "'I caught her just now, swiggin' away with the tap in a mug.' He asked his companion would she like a wet. She asked for water, and so great was her need that, making a barricade of closed lips and teeth to the multitude of apparently wingless mosquitoes thriving in its green tepidity, she moistened her mouth and throat. "'Oh, I say, Billy,' called Mag as he drove off. Her tones suggested her having forgotten an important matter, and he turned eagerly. "'When's it gonna rain?' she shrieked, convulsed with merriment. "'Go and crawl into a oller log,' he shouted angrily. "'No, but truly, Billy,' Billy turned again. "'Give my love to yellow Liza. That's Lucia.' They had not gone far before he looked round again. "'Gord!' he cried excitedly. "'Look at Mag going through her old woman.' Mag had the old woman's head between her knees, dentist fashion, and seemed to concentrate upon her victim's mouth 
whose feeble impotence was soon demonstrated by the operator releasing her and triumphantly raising her hand what the finger and thumb held the woman knew and the other guessed by god eh that's prime ain't it no flies on mag not a fly he said admiringly see me in her he asked as he drove on his tone suggested no need to reply and his listener did not a giddy unreality took the sting from everything even from her desire to beseech him to turn back to the siding and leave her there to wait for the train to take her back to civilization she felt she had lost her mental balance little matters became distorted and the greater shrivelled he was now more communicative and the oaths and adjectives so freely used were surely coined for such circumstances damned the wretched starving and starved sheep looked and were bloody the beaks of the glutted crows blasted the whole of the plain they drove through gaping cracks suggested yawning graves and the skeleton fingers of the drooping miles seemingly pointed to them see me and mag he asked again no flies on mag not a wink batter he chuckled in tribute it was that damn flashful jimmy fennerty he continued the blanky fool he never had no show with mag and yet he'd go down there it was two mile further this way yet damned if the blanky fool wouldn't come this way every time bless the boss he was with him stead of goin the short cut the way i come this mornin and every time mag'd make him part half a quid i was only there just about five minutes myself and i stuck up nearly half a quid and there's four gates he flogged the horse and painted them crimson when he remembered them this way more'n on the way i come this mornin presently he gave her the reins with instructions to drive through one it seemed to take a long time to close it and he had to fix the back of the buggy before he opened it and after it was closed after getting out several times in quick succession to fix the back of the buggy when there was no gate he seemed to forget the extra distance he kept his hand on hers when she gave him the reins and bade her keep up a pecker someone would soon buck up to her if their boss wasn't on but the boss it seemed was a terror for young uns jimmy fannerty has took up with a yaller piece and is livin with her but not me that's not me i'm like the boss that's me no yaller satin for me he watched for the effect of this degree of taste on her though she had withdrawn her hand he kept winking at her and she had to move her feet to the edge of the buggy to prevent his pressing against them he told her with sudden anger that any red-black gin was as good as a half-chow any day and it was no use gammonin for he knew what she was if billy skywonky had to string on to yaller liza more air on his chest for doin so striking his own i can get as many white gins as i wanna and i'd as soon tackle a gin as a chow anyways on his next visit to the back of the buggy she heard the crash of glass breaking against a tree after a few snatches of song he lighted his pipe and grew sorrowfully reminiscent yes sell me nearly half a quid and that coloured old og of a cow of a mother soon as she's off the booze i'll see that she gets it then he missed his silk handkerchief ghost he said breathing heavily mag snavelled it lizer'll spot that's gone soon as we get within coo ear of her 
Against hope he turned and looked along the road, felt every pocket, lifted his feet and looked under the mat. His companion, in reply, said she had not seen it since his visit to the shanty. "'My God!' he said. "'Mag's a fair terror.' He was greatly troubled till the braggart in him gave an assertive flicker. "'Know what I'll do to Liza? Soon she begins to start nagging at me.' He intended this question as an insoluble conundrum, and waited for no surmises. "'Fill a mug with this.' The shut fist he shook was more than a mugful. "'Twouldn't be the first time I done it, nor the last.' But the anticipation seemed little comfort to him. The rest of the journey was done in silence, and without even a peep at the sky. When they came to the homestead gate, he said his throat felt as though a goanna had crawled into it and died. He asked her for a pin, and clumsily dropped it in his efforts to draw the collar up to his ears, but had better luck with a hairpin. He appeared suddenly subdued and sober, and as he took his seat after closing the gate, he offered her his hand and said hurriedly, "'No arm done, and no arm meant, and don't let on to my missus, that's her on the veranda, that we come be the shanty.' It was dusk, but through it she saw that the woman was dusky too. "'Boss in, Liza?' There was contrition and propitiation in his voice. "'You've been a nice blanky time,' said his missus, "'and lucky for you, Billy Skywonky, he ain't.' With bowed head, his shoulders making kindly efforts to hide his ears, he sat silent and listening respectfully. The woman in the buggy thought that the volubility of the angry half-caste's tongue was the nearest thing to perpetual motion. Under her orders, both got down, and from a seat under the open window in the little room to which Liza had motioned, she gave respectful attention to the still rapidly flowing tirade. The offence had been some terrible injustice to a respectable married woman, slavin' and graftin' and sweatin' from mornin' to night for a slungin', idlin', lazy blackguard. In an indefinable way the woman felt that both of them were guilty, and to hide from her part of the reproof was mean and cowardly. The half-caste from time to time included her, and by degrees she understood that the wasted time of which Liza complained was supposed to have been dissipated in flirtation. Neither the shanty nor Mag had mention. From a kitchen facing the yard, a Chinaman came at intervals, and with that assumption of having mastered the situation in all of its bearings, through his thorough knowledge of the English tongue, he shook his head in calm, shocked surprise. His sympathies were unmistakably with Liza, and he many times demonstrated his grip of the grievance by saying, by Clive, Billy, it's a blay shame. Maybe it was a sense of what was in his mind that made the quivering woman hide her face when virtuous Ching too came to look at her. She was trying to eat when a dog ran into the dining room, and despite the violent beating of her heart, she heard the rouseabout tell the boss as he unsaddled his horse. The only woman I see was Arf Chow, and she says she's the one, and she's in the dining room having a tuck in. She was too giddy to stand when the boss entered, but she turned her mournful eyes on him, and supporting herself by the table, stood and faced him. He kept on his hat, and she, watching, saw curiosity and surprise change into anger as he looked at her. "'What an infernal cheek you had to come! Who sent you?' he asked stormily. She told him, 
and added that she had no intention of remaining. How old? She made no reply. His last thrust, as in disgust, he strode out, had the effect of a galvanic bakery on her dying body. Her bedroom was reeking with a green, heavy scent. Empty powder boxes and rouge pots littered the dressing table, and various other aids to nature evidenced her predecessor's frailty. From a coin in its fastness, a black spider eyed her malignantly, and as long as the light lasted, she watched it. The ringing of a bell slung outside in the fork of a tree awoke her before dawn. It was mustering, bush stock-taking, and all the station hands were astir. There was a noise of galloping horses being driven into the stockyard, and the clamour of the men as they caught and saddled them. Above the clatter of plates in the kitchen, she could hear the affected drawl of the Chinaman talking to Liza. She trod heavily along the passage, preparing the boss's breakfast. This early meal was soon over, and with the dog snapping playfully at the horse's heels, all rode off. Spasmodic bars of a bicycle built for two came from the kitchen. Maylie, Maylie, give me answer do. There was neither haste nor anxiety in the singer's tones. Before the kitchen fire, oblivious to the heat, stood the Chinaman cook, inert from his morning's opium. It was only nine, but this was well on in the day for Ching, whose morning began at four. He ceased his song as she entered. You come Sydney? Ah, you Mally? Ah, Sydney, welly nice place. This placey welly dry. Too muchy no lane. Welly dry. She was watching his dog. On a block lay a flitch of bacon, and across the freshly cut side the dog threw its tongue, then snapped at the flies. "'That dog will eat the bacon,' she said. "'No,' answered the cook. "'E no eat. Em too sore.' It was salt. She had tried it for breakfast. He began energetically, something about, "'By and by me getting mally. By cly, now half cast, too muchy longer chlaw. He laughed and shook his head, reminiscent of last night, and waited for applause. But fascinated, she still watched the dog, who from time to time continued to take saw with his flies. "'Go outside, sir,' said the cook, in a spirit of rivalry. The dog stood and snapped. "'Go outside, I say.' No notice from the dog. "'Go outside, I tell you,' stamping his slippered feet and taking a fire-stick. The dog leisurely sat down and looked at his master with mild reproof. "'Go inside, then. Any bloody say you lie.' But pointing to their joint bedroom with a lighted stick, the dog went to the greasy door, saw that the hens sitting on the bed were quietly laying eggs to go with the bacon, and came back. She asked him where was the rouseabout who had driven her in yesterday. "'Oh, Billy Skywonky. E Mally all right. Liza in, Missy.' He went on to hint that affection there was misplaced, but that he himself was unattached. She saw the rouseabout rattle into the yard in a spring cart. He let down the back board and dumped three sheep under a light gallows. Their two front feet were strapped to one behind. He seemed breathless with haste. "'Oh, I say,' he called out to her. "'The boss, he told me this morning that I was to tell you you was to sling your hook. To do a get,' he explained. So bundle your duds together quick and lively. Liza's down at the tank, washin'. Let's get away afore she sees us, or she'll make you swallow your chewers. 
lowering his voice he continued i want to go to their shanty only to get me handkerchief he bent and strained back a sheep's neck drew the knife and steel from his belt and skilfully danced an edge on the knife she noticed that the sheep lay passive with its head back till its neck curved in a bow and that the glitter of the knife was reflected in its eye End of section 4